up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a nurse practitioner talks about opioids, pain control, and reversing the epidemic. They're taking the opioids, they're having the hypersensitivity, and we have to find a way to assure them that there is nothing new physically happening. It's the opioids that are causing the increased pain. An emergency physician goes over issues of importance to seniors. I don't think everybody who falls has to come to the emergency department, but if they're significantly injured, or you're worried that there was some reason for the fall, as I said, weakness, dizziness, recent illness, then you ought to come. And a registered dietitian nutritionist introduces a website that can help improve diets. A sample menu? You might not follow everything that's on there, but if you're like, oh, I could eat that for breakfast a couple times a week, and then I could eat this the other days, it'll give you ideas. We'll have all that in a visit from our Healing Muse, but the news is next. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk about medical emergencies that are common among seniors. Then we'll hear about a website designed to help improve diets. But first, we'll discuss opioids, pain control, and reversing the epidemic. We've talked many times about the opioid epidemic in our community. Today, we're going to focus on part of the underlying cause, and that is pain. Uh, Teresa Baxter is here with me. She's a nurse practitioner who works in the acute pain service at Upstate University Hospital. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about how we got to these, this epidemic that we're in the midst of with um, opioid abuse. How did we get to where we are. Sure. So we wanted to make sure that we treated our patients' pain. Um, and before we knew it, we have now over 64,000 people that have passed away from opioid overdose in 2016. 64,000 Over 64,000 in, in America. Yes. Uh, how did we get to that enormous number? It all started um, uh, back when we decided that we did not want patients to suffer with pain rightfully so. So we found out that we could use opioid pain medication for that. Opioid pain medication is very useful in many situations, especially for acute pain. So and like after surgery mm -hmm. or something? After surgery or after a terrible injury, they're very effective in treating that immediate uh, acute pain. The problem is when we continue that long term. Um, many years ago, we were told that the opioids were not, uh, had very low incidence of addiction. So medical providers were encouraged to prescribe them to their patients uh, with no stopping point and no cap on how, how high of the dosage we could use. So that's what we did. We did not want our patients to suffer. We wanted um, them to be able to lead productive lives. And so we prescribed these medications. And so they're more addictive than we thought. They're a lot more addictive than we thought. They're the way that they said that it was uh, not addicting was because there was a very small survey many years ago, um, a, a, an article in a medical publication that was uh, focused on just a few patients that did become addicted out of a, a number of patients. So they used that as saying the rate of addiction is very low when we know that that's actually not, not the case at all. 
In previous interviews, we've talked with experts about how some people turn to illegal opioids, such as heroin, um, when a prescription for pain medicine runs out. But that means these people are seeking relief from pain. So I'm wondering, where's this pain coming from? Sure. So when someone has acute pain and we prescribe them opioid pain medication, that's perfect. That is completely acceptable. I do want to point out that opioids are not the only thing that we should use for treating pain. In the acute setting, say you're in a terrible car accident or you have surgery, we may have to use opioids because we know they're very effective. There's so many other things, though, that we should include with the opioids. We like to use multimodal pain management regimen, which would include perhaps um, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, muscle relaxers. We can oftentimes do interventional procedures to help people with pain. So we try to use an entire uh, repertoire of pain relief. And the problem comes when we continue to prescribe the opioids or the patient feels like they their pain is not uh, resolved, so they want to keep taking the opioids. And over time, when opioids are, are put into our system, we become dependent on them, and that can lead to addiction. When we, when we stop people from being able to go everywhere to get their opioids, then uh, they were saying, what are we supposed to do now? <laughs> we're addicted. We need to have these. And I think that's when really the heroin blew up. Now, someone who has chronic pain, um, opioids are not recommended for, for chronic yes. pain, right? Right, or- exactly. The opioids over time change our opioid receptors, so we need more and more of it, and they don't end up actually helping resolve the pain. Why do we have pain? We have pain so that our body can say, stop what I'm doing, address the problem, fix whatever problem it is, and move on. Sometimes we have pain, and we just have to find ways to kind of um, cope with that to increase our functioning. Um, Opioids over time can increase our pain, make us hyperalgesic and hypersensitive. So they can, over time, actually cause more pain. And and I think a lot of people know that. Um, They can can increase our our sensitivity to pain and make us feel pain when maybe there's nothing that's causing pain. um, You're part of the acute pain service. What what types of patients? Do you see patients um, struggling with chronic pain or, or acute pain or both? I see all of the above. I have several different groups of patients that I work with on a daily basis. The acute pain is relatively simple. Someone has surgery, we can give them an epidural or a nerve block. We'll treat their acute pain and help them with physical therapy and get back to functioning. And they go home and and they just live their lives. We have patients that come in with chronic pain and we will uh, evaluate them. We will do labs. We will do imaging and see if there's something happening that we must do something about. Oftentimes we get patients with acute and chronic, and we have to try to manage their pain that way. Then we have patients that are at that point where they're moving into addiction, right? They're taking the opioids, they're having the hypersensitivity, and we have to find a way to assure them that there is nothing new physically happening. It's the opioids that are causing the increased pain. So you're trying to prevent them from becoming fully... Um, Oftentimes people are already addicted, unfortunately. Uh, So we just have to help them. And sometimes helping them is explaining to them and educating them that these opioids are causing problems. They are, they're, they're increasing your pain. They're making it worse. So is it realistic if someone um, is suffering with a chronic pain, is it realistic for, for them to think that they can live a pain-free life or go back to before the injury or before the, 
I think everyone's different. I think that's why we like to focus more on uh, individual patient-centered care. Okay. Um, is it always realistic to be pain-free? Probably it isn't. So what we want to do, our goal is to reduce suffering and make the pain more tolerable and um, restore people to functionality. That's really the goal. Okay. And I've always heard um, the pain scale, the 1 to 10 pain scale. Yeah. It's... Yeah. So that is pretty much the gold standard for assessing pain, um, 0 to 10. I used to say to patients, please tell me what is your pain, 0 to 10, with 10 being the worst pain you've ever felt in your life. But I don't find that to be very useful anymore. I find that 10 is actually the kind of pain where you can't speak, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you just cannot tolerate that pain. That's a 10. Um, and so we go down. And it really, if we use that, that scale appropriately, we can kind of gauge how well we're actually helping the patients and what changes we may have to make. Okay, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Teresa Baxter, a nurse practitioner who works in the acute pain service. Um, now, recently there was a change, I guess it was state law, that um, there's limits now for the amount of painkillers that can be prescribed. So is that going to help reduce um, addiction? So the situation with that is um, we were finding that patients with acute pain or they had a, a surgical procedure were going home being prescribed uh, 30 days plus of opioid pain medication, which that's too much. We realized that most acute pain should resolve for the most part within three to seven days. So the new law is that uh, seven days is the initial prescription for acute pain that patients can be sent home with. If the patient continues to have pain or their pain is not getting better, then they would have to see their provider again to be reevaluated and perhaps another prescription is issued, but um, it's better to uh, go back to the patient-centered care, not saying everybody who has this procedure can get 20 days worth of opioids. We're finding that the more pills that are out in circulation, the more chances are that they're going to be misused, not just by the patient, but by diversion. Now, what about medical marijuana? Is that going to help in terms of, um, is that is that something you can prescribe for pain relief? Or I cannot. Uh, you have to have a special license to do that, which is a course. And what happens is the provider uh, assesses the patient, do a certain criteria for medical marijuana, um, and then they're issued the card, and then they go to a, a dispensary to get their um, medical marijuana. I'm not sure. I think that I think it's an option for patients with pain. From what I hear from my patients that get it from another provider, they say that it does help. So I think it certainly is something that we should consider. Depending on the situation or That's the right. patient. Mm -hmm. um, are there alternatives to pain medicine that would actually help relieve pain in a lasting way? And if so, why aren't they being used more? Yeah, that is a problem, and it's really multifactorial. So Insurance doesn't pay for things like massage, and sometimes they don't pay for chiropractor or gym memberships. And we know that lifestyle modification is important for any chronic disease. Chronic, chronic pain is something that can be managed with a lot of lifestyle modifications, such as weight loss, strengthening our, our muscles, our core, things like that. Uh, there are medications other than opioids that can be useful in treating pain as well. A lot of cognitive behavioral therapies as well can help. Okay. Let's talk about what we're doing to take care of the people who are addicted. And I know you, you said you see some of these people coming to the um, acute pain service. I do. Um, what's, what's offered for them? So we're really working on that quite a lot as a nation. Um, as we know, uh, President, President Trump just declared a national public health emergency for the opioid overdose epidemic. So that hopefully will 
uh, enable us to have more money to help get people into treatments. So people can, um, if someone is in the hospital, I'm treating someone in the hospital, I can assess them. I can have uh, um, people in the uh, addiction treatment field see them while they're still in the hospital, and we can actually start them on medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder or addiction and go from there. Um, we also have that's um, we also have Dr. Brian Johnson, who is our addiction psychiatrist, who sees patients in the hospital as well, and they can follow up with him as an outpatient. We can refer patients to Dr. Ross Sullivan. He has a bridge clinic in the hospital, and a bridge clinic is if we start someone on uh, buprenorphine, which is also known as Suboxone or Subutex, he will see them in his bridge clinic um, to prescribe them the Suboxone while they get into a more permanent provider and program because there's a shortage of Suboxone providers in our area. And Suboxone is used um, instead of an opioid if sure. someone's addicted to Right. So Suboxone is one of the things that we can use a medication for opioid use disorder. Suboxone is basically buprenorphine with naloxone. It's an opioid receptor. It sort of activates the opioid receptor, and it also blocks the opioid receptor. So patients will have some pain relief, but mostly they'll have, um, that'll take away their craving for opioid and withdrawal symptoms, and that's really the key. And it lasts a long time, and it enables them to get into treatments and work on other underlying things that may have led to the addiction or help them kind of get their lives back. Is that why they call it a bridge clinic? Because so, it gets them from one place to the next? Or? So, so for the bridge clinic, that's actually, if a patient um, is on Suboxone, and they don't have a provider in the community because there's a shortage of providers in the community, they can come to the bridge clinic. The bridge clinic is sort of like from point A to point B. You don't have a someone to prescribe this to you, so you can come to the bridge clinic until you can get to a provider to prescribe it for to you. Gotcha. Well, let me ask you this. What do you say to someone if you if you hear of someone saying that a person who's addicted to, say, heroin you know, they made the choice to take the heroin. What do you say to that person? I say to them that um, we don't, well, we don't know what leads people to make the choices that they do make. Sure, if someone injects heroin, then they have made that decision, but oftentimes the decision is taken away from them because the opioids change their brain. So say they've gotten a legitimate prescription for opioids and they've taken it for an amount of time where they're now addicted, and then that the opioids are taken away from them because their prescription ran out or something else happens um, and they start using heroin, it's because their brain has been changed so much that it's almost a primordial response. They need to have that, that drug and sometimes that's the only option for people. Heroin is cheaper than opioid pain medication. Um, it's the same thing though. Heroin, morphine, dilaudid, oxycodone, they're all the same, hydrocodone. They're all opioids. So the drive um, to, to find that opioid or, or whatever is, is like a drive for, for food? or It can be, yes. And some people do it out of desperation. They just they need to not be sick. And that's, that's why a lot of people continue to seek out the opioids because the pain of withdrawal, I understand, is horrible. They're throwing up. They're having diarrhea. They're having terrible stomach cramps. It's almost like having the flu times 100 from what I hear. And that pain, that feeling uh, drives people to, they'll do anything to not have that feeling. 
Um, so they're, they're trying to stay normal. They're not trying to be um, high, if you will. They're trying to just have a feeling of normalcy. And not be sick. And, and not be like sick, this. right. They're, they're, they're so ill from their opioid addiction, and they can't just stop. They may want to. They may want to so desperately. I don't think anybody gets up in the morning and says, hmm, I think today I'll become an opioid addict and I'll start injecting heroin. People don't do that. They're just so desperate to feel normal and to feel good, and they're convinced that it helps their pain and it's going to be okay. Um, if we just educate ourselves on imagining these people, these are people's children, these are people's mothers, fathers, grandparents, you know, um, they didn't wake up saying, I'm going to be a heroin addict today. And, and basically, this is a medical issue, and we have to help them. Get help. Don't judge. If you see somebody who's in trouble, offer them help. Direct them to us. Well, this has been very good information. I appreciate you being here. My guest has been nurse practitioner Teresa Baxter from the Acute Pain Service at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate, HealthLink on Air. Next up, medical emergencies that affect seniors on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. One in four senior citizens over the age of 65 suffers a fall each year, and these falls can be deadly. They're the leading cause of fatal injury among this population, and falls are responsible for about 2.8 million visits to a hospital emergency department every year. Here to discuss falls with us is Dr. Jamie Chacho from the Department of Emergency Medicine. He specializes in geriatric emergency care. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start by establishing what geriatric means. What is the age? Well, it's interesting. Geriatric is changing all the time. The uh, 85-year-olds now call themselves the new 65-year-olds. We consider for our purposes anybody over 60 um, would be eligible for our GEM care, our emergency geriatric unit. So GEM care, that's um, something that's unique in central New York at Upstate, right? It is, and it's really unique around the country. Um, there is approximately 2,500 emergency rooms around the country, but there's only about uh, 75 geriatric emergency units. And we consider this analogous to a pediatric ER. It's a unit specifically for, geared towards senior patients with their unique set of problems. Okay, and it's part of the emergency room at community? Um... Yes, it's a wing off the emergency department. Some of the characteristics of it is that it's quieter, more peaceful, which seniors tend to need. It has uh, senior-pleasing colors as picked by our team when we built it. Uh, There are natural ultraviolet spectrum lights. The mattresses are thicker. Uh, We expect patients to be in that unit longer than they would, excuse me, longer than a younger person would be in the emergency department because it takes more time for their evaluation. And we don't want to create the situation where bed sores might develop for being there, being in the bed for a long period of time. Okay. 
The floors are low glare and uh, low skid floors compared to the typical emergency room floors that are highly polished and tiled. So it's really senior oriented. Okay, good to know. Well, now let's talk about falls because I gather that's a, a big reason that a senior citizen might require emergency care. It is one of the common reasons seniors come to the emergency department. Okay. So how, how often or how many falls do you see in a year? Do you have any numbers that... I don't. Just based on my personal feeling, in an eight-hour shift, I would bet five, six, seven patients come in having fallen. Falling. All right. So why are senior citizens prone to falls? Well, as we age, every single one of our body organs gets weaker. In fact, that's a sort of a definition of aging. Uh, the heart isn't as strong. The lungs don't oxygenate as well. Um, two big things happen in seniors that we forget about. One is the immune system. We don't fight infection as well. Um, but the other is the balance system. Uh, we don't have the balance that we used to. Uh, I say we because I'm 65. <laughs> okay. Moreover, our muscles aren't as weak. We don't sense our position in uh, in space, in a sense, uh, as well as we did as we did when we were younger. Um, and vision too, right? Vision, vision, de decreases. vision decreases. We don't see the hazards that might be there. Um, Medication is a huge problem. Um, it's said that 12% uh, of senior visits to an emergency room are for side effects of medications. And a whole host of medications increase the risk of falls, narcotics, uh, antidepressants, uh, bladder medications, uh, and so on. Cardiac medications lower our heart rate, increase the risk of falls. Okay. So are the, are the falls um, caused by tripping or stumbling on something or from getting dizzy or all of the above? One of the things I really push um, is that the identification of the cause of the fall is as important as the complications from the fall. So there are so many different reasons uh, for the causes of the fall. Um, that we, I just spoke about. So you, you don't, you're not there just to treat this, what comes from the fall, from the injury or whatever, but you've got to figure out what prompted it, what made right. it happen. So we look at underlying illnesses, as I said, side effects of medications. Uh, is the patient just on the downward spiral of weakness and now they're starting to fall, which is a huge risk. In fact, a fall is a real marker for a downward decline of a senior. When they start falling, that's a message to the patient themselves and the family that they're on that downward, they may be on that downward spiral where they can't stay in their own home anymore. Hmm. And, wow. And it's sad. Well, I imagine there's um, orthopedic injuries that come from falls. Are there other things? So the comp you're asking about the complications of the falls. Right. Absolutely. Fractures, sprains, bruises, but bigger things. Um, head injuries, blood clots on the brain. Seniors can have a blood clot on the brain and have minimal symptoms for one to two weeks. 
Uh, so it's very important to, to search for those complications. Now, it seems, I, I mean, kids fall down, young adults fall down, and they get right back up. Why, are, why is it that falls are more serious in seniors? I mean, you alluded, you said that it can be a marker for a downward decline. Um, I alluded to this earlier when I said the immune system is weaker. So a senior with, let's say, diverticulitis or appendicitis might just have mild abdominal discomfort, whereas a young person would have severe pain. As a consequence, they may not seek care because it's a little mild belly pain, but what they do is they get weaker. They get up, they walk around, and they fall down. Hence, back to the importance of looking for the cause of the fall. Do you have an underlying illness? Do you have, uh, are you dehydrated? Might there be abnormalities in your sodium, potassium, minerals? Are you a new diabetic? Um, is there a problem with your thyroid? And one of the major ones, as I said before, was side effects of medications. So that there's a lot for you to tease out as the emergency room physician. Yeah, absolutely. This is not a simple patient to come in and deal with. Absolutely. Like. On the other hand, there are plenty of 65 and 70-year-olds who are very young functionally. They're still golfing, swimming, skiing, hiking, traveling. And you don't have to treat them like the more aged seniors. So it's very tough to decide who do I do this big evaluation for for a fall and who do I just say, yeah, you sprained your ankle because you tripped on the dog's leash. Uh, so it's difficult. And it's more than just age, a number. It's more than just looking at Absolutely. how many years. Absolutely. Okay. We see 55-year-old people who are functionally 80. We see 75-year-old people who are functionally 55. Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine, Dr. Jamie Chacho, who's the Director of Gym Care, um, Geriatric Emergency Medicine, and we're talking about falls. Um, so I wanted to have you walk us through what to expect if a loved one falls in the home. Um, what's your advice for, for what to do for that person? Do they, do they need to go to the hospital? The first thing I would look at is what's their status at the time of the fall? Are they significantly injured? If they're significantly injured, of course they've got to come to the hospital. If they can't get up and walk, then it's time for the ambulance. If the person can get up and walk and seems fairly stable, it's reasonable to come up by private car. And the second thing is you have to start thinking about why did you fall? Did you pass out first? Did you have a weak or dizzy spill? Have you been sick lately? Uh, I don't think everybody who falls has to come to the emergency department. Um, but if they're significantly injured or you're worried that there was some reason for the fall, as I said, weakness, dizziness, recent illness, then you ought to come. Um, if they were unconscious? Oh, absolutely. Definitely come. Unconscious. Okay. Um, and if they're in pain? That's pain, signs afterward. of head injury, okay. neck pain, absolutely. Hip pain? Uh, hip fractures are common with seniors uh, as our bones get weaker. Um, if there's any kind of hip pain, you absolutely need to come to the hospital. Is, the, is there always hip pain with a broken hip? Well, that's very interesting. No, there's almost always hip pain, but 
there's a certain subgroup of people who fracture their hip, but it's a stable fracture. And they get up and they walk around for a few days and they go, oh yeah, my hip hurts a little bit. And then two or three days later, the fracture comes loose, becomes unstable, and they fall again. And now they have a deformed fracture that is more complicated to take care of. So yes, they typically have pain, but sometimes it's very mild and not severe. Now, um, uh, if you do have to make a trip to the hospital, um, what do you need to bring with you? Do you need to bring medications? You don't have to bring your medications, but you should bring an updated list of your medications. And if you don't have that, then throw all your medications in a bag and bring them up. Absolutely. And what can a person expect when they arrive? Say they they come to gem care having fallen. What what sort of lays ahead for them? So GEMCARE is a unit of the main emergency department. When you come to the community campus for emergency care, you get seen by the nurse, you're triaged by the nurse, and if she deems you appropriate, she says, we're going to place you in GEMCARE. The type of patients we don't put in GEMCARE are critical patients. They need to be in the main emergency department. Patients with diarrhea, patients with uh, open wounds typically do not go there. Um, nursing home patients who are bedridden, severely contracted, or severely agitated patients don't go there. The real focus of geriatric emergency medicine is actually the functional active seniors. The population of seniors over 65 in this country right now is about 48 million. In about 12 years, it's going to be up to about 75 million. So the population of seniors is rising dramatically. And it's a different group of seniors than in the past. Uh, In the past, people worked up until retirement. They lived four or five years after that, and that was it. Now retirement is expected to be a quarter to a third of people's lives where they're looking forward to that stage of their life to travel, ski, hunt, fish, hike, bike, golf, and do all those things. Um, so it's our job to keep them healthy because if we keep them healthy, they have a good quality of life and they have low health care costs. Something we want to do for this country. Okay. Um, if, if they have fallen and broken something, a hip, say, um, are necessarily surgery or not necessarily? I would say well into the 90% of the time, hip fractures require surgery. Patients do better with surgery, as risky as surgery is. They do better with surgery rather than laying around waiting for the fracture to heal. That's riskier. Okay. And this can take a long time to heal, right? In a senior, probably eight weeks to heal. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate you taking the time to discuss something that affects so many senior citizens. Um, It still astounds me that one in four people over age 65 suffers a fall each year. That's a lot. Anyway, my guest has been upstate emergency physician, Dr. Jamie Chacho. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine, and he's the director of geriatric emergency medicine, or GEM care, at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Coming up next, the website that can help improve your diet. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin from the Jocelyn Diabetes Center is here today to talk about the USDA website, which is a resource for learning how to eat healthy. It's called choosemyplate.gov, all one word, choosemyplate.gov. Thanks for being here, Maureen. Thanks for having me. So uh, this is a website that the United States Department of Agriculture put together. Um, So tell us about it. Well, this is one of my favorite sites. I think it's a very underutilized site, and I would like people to get to use it and get to know more about it because there are so much great resources with it. I think what happens is people think, oh, they're just going to tell me what to put on my plate. They tell me to divide my plate up, but there are so many useful tools. I get very excited about this website. So who's it designed for? Is it? Um... It's designed for adults, uh, kids, toddlers, professionals, everyone. Anyone can use it in terms of, I use it, um, there is a section called 10 tips. I use that for the clients that I deal with. Teachers can use it. Moms and dads can use it. There's a whole kids section. It's just a wonderful, wonderful site. Let me tell people again, because as they're listening, they may want to actually log on and and go there to explore it as we're talking about it. Choosemyplate.gov. And I also noticed uh, English, Spanish, and multiple other languages that you can set the page to. Mm -hmm. um, So let's walk through some of the features that you like. Well, one of the features I like is everyone is always online. (laughs) So in terms of the online tools, when you go, there's a, if you go to the category and it's eating on a budget. So Going to that, it takes you to four other like sub-chapters. One is creating a grocery plan. One is shopping smart. Then there's preparing your healthy meals. And then there's another section called additional resources. So the one I like to have people look at, all of them, but this one is just a great one. If you go to the prepare your healthy meals, there is one and it says tasty and low-cost recipes. If you go to that, that actually takes you to the USDA What's Cooking, which is this wonderful site for recipes. I have clients that are always looking, what's new? What's a recipe? Where can I get it? This is there. You can create your own recipe book. You can look up recipes in terms of it. They will tell you how they are based in terms of are you getting enough fruits and vegetables, and they actually put it into the category of the My Plate that this recipe is giving you some grains, some fruits and vegetables. But they're nice, easy, basic recipes. That's what I like. And I think we're always looking for something different. You know, I picked up one and it was chicken spaghetti. Great. It shows you how to do it, low cost. It gives you the cost. It gives you the nutritional breakdown. And you can create your own cookbook, which I think is wonderful. I love that. So if you have, say you want, you've got a bunch of black beans that you want to work with, can you go in there and look for recipes that you use can. black beans? That's the thing. You can go in and look and say, well, I want um, a recipe with more vegetables. And then that will pull it up. Or you can do it with fruits or your black beans, those kinds of things. It's just, it's a great, great thing. And I love it because I think it's easy. You know, all too often I think people try and get a recipe that's maybe a little gourmet. These are nice, basic 
down-to-earth, easy recipes that I think anybody can use. And so they don't use a lot of the ingredients that no one's heard of or doesn't right, have on right. their shelf. <laughs> or you buy and spend you know, $5 for one spice that you use once in your life. <laughs> well, that's useful for um, new people that are new to cooking as well as people that have... Definitely. I think it gets people back to basics. It helps us look at what are we doing basically. Am I including, you know, my fruits and my vegetables? And how can I take chicken and make it a little different from my family, but make it healthy, which is the main emphasis of this. Okay, so that's the eating on a budget tab, but there's um, other features too that you... There's a w another feature under the additional recipe recipes um, or resources excuse me there's a sample menu people love sample menus that's probably one of the things I get asked can I have a sample menu do you have any sample menus this is done for you it's a two-week sample menu it's based on about 2,000 calories okay so that's a little different but it gives you some guidelines and then what it does with there's a recipe in the sample menu it takes you to that to the what's cooking so it tells you oh Here's the recipe, and then it takes you to that, gives you the recipe, and gives you snack ideas. It gives you the whole nutritional breakdown. I think, again, this is a great way if you're like, I need to look at what I'm doing. I need to change it. How do I start? People are overwhelmed sometimes. A sample menu, you might not follow everything that's on there, but if you're like, oh, I could eat that for breakfast a couple times a week, and then I could eat this the other days, it'll give you ideas. But someone did the work for you. That's what I love about this. Too often, I think people don't want to do the work. Well, it is. You and mentioned it's, it's, it can be overwhelming. You yeah. walk into a grocery store, where do you begin? What? Right, right. And the beauty of this, so the sample menu then takes you to a grocery list. They do the grocery list for you. So if you're looking at the sample menu, they tell you, oh, you need chicken. Oh, you need this. And then you can compare it to, what do I have in my house? Oh, I've got my grocery list in. Instead of walking into the grocery store, not knowing what to get, and then coming out spending too much money and saying, what did I get? I didn't really want that. This helps you in terms of planning. That, I think, is the biggest thing. People, it's tough to plan. We're challenged all with time, but this helps you in terms of that whole planning mode. I got menus, then, oh, then I've got a grocery list. I can go to the grocery store. Makes everyone's life a little bit easier. And so it's for like a two-week span, so two you could span. theoretically shop once every two weeks. And You could. That's the beauty of it. Okay. Uh, what about my plate tips? What's that? My plate tips, that is, there is probably over 20, 25, they call them um, 10 tips or the my plate tips. So you can look on it and say, oh, I know I'm not doing too good on my vegetables. How am I going to add my vegetables? There's a 10 plate, there's a 10 tips on ways to add vegetables in your diet. Um, budgeting, um, in terms of looking at breakfast ideas, activity. There are so many, and again, they're in different languages, which I think is a wonderful thing. You can print them up. You can just put them up on your computer or your phone, however you want to do it. If you're a teacher, it's a great way of helping kids. I know we're trying to get our kids more motivated and interested. It's a great way to have our kids say, you know, here's a way of getting more fruits and vegetables. Why don't you bring this home to mom and dad? It sparks a whole other conversation. And again, they're easy. They're quick 10 tips series. So if your kid comes home and says, you know, they learned about... I don't know, asparagus, mm -hmm. and you've never prepared or eaten asparagus. Are there resources on this website to show you how to? That's the thing. You can go that to that what's cooking and say, oh, okay, what are some recipes? How do I cook this? Good basic nutrition information. Okay. Uh, that's great. a great thing I love. Neat. Uh, there's something called Super Tracker that's got a lot yes. of... Yes, Super Tracker. So everyone, and nowadays is we, you know, we're always on apps and we're doing phone apps and we're trying to figure out, you know, how do I keep track of it? And people have Fitbits in terms of it. Again, 
Here's Super Tracker. You can go in here. There's a whole database in terms of looking up the food. You're wondering what you ate today. What's the, what's the calories? What's a nutritional value? You can do a, what's called a food tracker, which is one of my favorite things for people to do. It's what am I eating? Putting it down. This you're putting it down on an online tool instead of you know, having to write it down, which nobody likes to do. You can so you sign into it and... Yep, um, and you can personalize it. So you can put in your own, you know, what you want. You put in your weight, you put in your age, your height. Do you have goals? Do you want to lose weight? Do you want to maintain your weight? And it can help you set up an individualized meal plan. It's a wonderful thing. And it's, it's something that is such a great resource. And again, I think we tend to go towards phone apps that maybe we have to purchase these are all free these are all through the usda these are free sites in terms of it and i th i feel they're they're probably underutilized so when people are like i'm like you could go to super tracker you could get your your children started in saying well yeah the teacher told me you know we've been looking at fruits and vegetables how are you doing for fruits and vegetables in terms of it great database in terms of it so if people just wonder well i wonder what the nutritional value is this will help you some great great information well, and um, you can call this up on your phone, yep. obviously, when mm -hmm. you're then in the grocery apps. store, mm -hmm. if you're having trouble figuring out how much, whatever calories this thing is. Or That's what. right. Yeah. But if you have those sample menus, they did it for you. They did it for you ahead of time. <laughs> so um, it, uh, with, a, with a kid, though, this could almost be set up like a game for them to keep track of what well, they Well, then eat, there's right? a whole section for children. So there's a kids, teens. Um, there's a whole section called My Kids Place. So I got to tell you, I went on this, and it was pretty fun. There's this one game, it's called Blast Off. So it sets it, again, you're putting in, you know, your age, those kinds of things. It gives you guidelines in terms of how many fruits and vegetables you should be eating, how much protein, how much milk. So the idea of the game is you pick and choose, and then if you, if you did the right selection, you can blast off. And if you didn't, you're still on the ground. So it's a really cool visual thing, but... It, it was, it made you stop and think. I mean, I'm doing this here and I'm like, oh, I love this. But, you know, and I kind of played with it. You know, I didn't, I didn't select the right snacks, but that's what I loved. It's like, oh, if you select it, it'll tell you, oh, you're a little over, you have too much fuel. So I talked about an energy fuel. So it's like, well, you had some snacks, but maybe you ate a little bit too much. And it was all a great visual tool. And then there's videos on there. There's songs and dance. There's physical activity things for kids that I see kids on on their phone, little kids in a stroller. Put them into my plate. Get them some good nutrition information. Let them see. Oh, this is a game, and yeah, I'm blasting off into the to the moon, but I'm actually getting them to think a little bit about nutrition in terms of instead of just playing a another a different mindless game. To me, this is a game that at least will interact and it'll get them thinking maybe about fruits and vegetables and those kinds of things. It seems like it's uh, a lot of the resources that a, a teacher or a classroom might um, Great resources, of. yes, yes. I don't know if teachers utilize it as much as they could. Um, I, I recommend it all the time. I use it a lot in terms of it because I like it for the basic things. But I think as far as teacher daycare centers, um, you know, after school programs in terms of it, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, there's tons of great things that you can do, you know, with kids and getting to learn about nutrition and in ways to improve themselves and improve their health. So you mentioned um, the food tracking, and when you're talking about, um, you know, trying to lose weight, um, the food is important, but so is the physical activity. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of those apps that, that you do have to pay for, or the, or the uh, what are they called, the, the pedometers yes. that people are wearing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that costs money, um, but, but you do want to track your physical activity as well, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, 
does this website account yep. for that? Yep, you can enter your activities, you can track your progress. It, it, again, they call it the physical activity tracker. Same thing, you can be looking at not only what am I doing as far as my eating, but am I moving? How many steps am I doing? What am I doing in terms of it? So it helps you take the whole, I think it's the whole piece of the puzzle, the whole picture in terms of like, oh, I'm not only just looking at my food here, and the plate that they're talking about, I'm looking at what am I doing and ways to increase my physical activity. That's even one of the 10 tips. There's ways to increase your physical activity. Good basic things. Let's talk about the 10 tips. I think we have a, a little bit of time to oh, squeeze them in. So. Okay, so just some um, quick ones. So here's the one in terms of your vegetables. Discover fast ways to cook. So they talk about people. People um, cook fresh frozen vegetables in the microwave. We pretty much know that. Um, be ahead of the game. Cut up a bunch of bell peppers, some carrot sticks, some pepper strips, those kinds of things. Get some cauliflower, break it up. So if your kids open up the refrigerator, oh, there's some cauliflower or broccoli there. Oh, okay, and I got a little jar of salsa with it. More likely um, to eat it if more it's already likely prepared. To, that's okay. right. Um, they talk about choose vegetables rich in color. What are we looking for? We're looking for you know dark green, purple, reds, those kinds of things. Check the freezer aisle, they tell you here. Frozen vegetables, great, great resource in terms of ways to getting in more vegetables. Stock up on your vegetables. Have them in your refrigerator. Have them either frozen. Have them ready to, like we talked about, have them there for your snack ideas. Um, Sip on some vegetable soup is one of the 10 tips in this one. So what's vegetable soup? Quick, easy thing that we can always make. I'm a little hungry. Well, it's not quite dinner time, but I can have a little bowl of soup. Great, easy way of getting good nutrition, good fiber, great. Lots of restaurant soups are an appetizer. That's so. right. Why not use that? Make your own. Make a crock pot. You have it going. Kids come home. They're a little hungry. Have a bowl of soup. Um, they talk about savor the seasonal vegetables, which I think is very important. So again, what's seasonal? Right now we're into root vegetables. So again, you could look and say, well, I don't really know what to do. I'm sick of just the potato here. What else do I do? It? What do I do with this parsnip? Again, 10 tips can give you ideas in terms of or the what's cooking, give you ideas how to use those vegetables. And then the last tip that they talk about is varying your vegetables. The more variety, again, the more nutrition, the better it is for you. So those are just quick, basic things, and that's what they do with the 10 tips. They just go and say, boom, 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 do some quick, easy ideas. I think it's just to get people thinking. They're not overloading people. They're just saying, oh, and people are, oh, yeah, I never thought of that. Oh, I could cut up some pepper strips. So quick, easy ideas to keep us more more involved in terms of making good changes for our nutrition. Well, and again, this is uh, the website choosemyplate.gov. Um, it's created by the United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, and USDA has its own website, usda.gov, and there's a lot of nutritional information, mm -hmm. but it's a little more geared to uh, professionals. It can um, be, yes, or more in terms of like looking research. Research. This is, things. again, more nice, general, anybody can use this. It's geared, I said, towards all age levels and all different types, professionals or just somebody say, I just want to look up a new recipe. Neat. Well, thank you so much for sharing You're it with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Um, my guest has been Upstate Registered Dietitian Nutritionist Maureen Franklin from the Upstate Jocelyn Diabetes Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poems about identity can be exhilarating and powerful. 
Two poets in volume 17 have described their identities in ways that contradict the stereotypes we so often see in the news. The first is by Pakistani-American writer and artist Saima Shamsi. Her poem creates a rich and complex portrait of a Muslim woman. Here is I, a Muslim woman. I, a Muslim woman, am a tree that bends but never breaks. I am flexible but stable, with roots that run deep and never die of thirst. My branches extend upward to the sky, while my seed reaches down into the earth. My hair covers and cascades like something between the cape of a superhero and the shroud of a monk. I live in a place where all of my identities come together and find solace in the spaces that overlap. I, a Muslim woman, am a river that floats above the sky. I am a black swan married with a white swan. My feathers are airy like the wind, and when one floats down from the sky as I take flight, it can break the pavement of the road where you stand. The feather falls back to earth below me with the greatest of ease, yet when it lands on the ground, its weight is as substantial as that of the cosmos. Next is physician Jenna Lee, a Vietnamese-American poet who has published two books of poetry, as well as fiction, essays, criticism, and translations. Listen to her poem, Sick Aunt. Mythic auntie, Bigfoot, who shares my father's blue bamboo, Boo blood, manticore, mild and gentle, who, when bashed with rifle butts, simply bowed and suffered the beating. Sphinx I've never seen, but have only heard of. It is easy loving an abstract concept, and throughout my life that is all you were, a far land and foreign. Just as other families sit at mealtimes talking Jesus, talking the devil, talking angels, God, and bogeymen, Mine talked only you and your illness. Over birthday cupcakes and Christmas drumsticks, we discussed you, struggled to understand you, analyzed obsessively why you walked off into the drizzle. We retraced your steps with our thoughts. With words, we painted mental pictures of where you wandered, incense foggy rooms in which soft-robed nuns extended you comfort college greens, including the one where you met that most willful lover, the one you married and who now supports you, you having grown too sick to keep working. Father tells your story with shame. He's drawn back from the world for fear that a busybody might discover you are his secret unicorn, my soul sister. Upstate's HealthLink on Air brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, we'll address the rising level of anxiety among teens. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.